Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, this is Benjamin Boyce, and welcome to the podcast video station that I run. Today's guest is Helena, who is a member of the Peak Resilience Project, which is a loose band of ne'er-do-wells or always-do-well young women who are seeking to raise awareness around issues of detransition. And last year I went through and I interviewed four of them, and Helena was one of those young women, and I wanted to catch back up with her because a part of the possibility of of value in this work and doing these interviews is checking in with people at a particular point in history and at a particular point in their lives, and especially with the young people, a lot of things happen and change, and there's a lot of... um, reconfiguration that's going on in a young person's life. And so I just wanted to take the opportunity to catch up with Helena and see where she is now in her journey and with regards to the various issues that she's involved with speaking about and thinking through. Um, And I don't need to say anything else except for I hope you're having a good day and I hope this satisfies you amply. I think it was in January last time when the big polar vortex came, froze over Lake Michigan. (laughs) I know, crazy. Um, So maybe we'll have one. I don't think they're projecting another one this year, but I know last year it was like people were talking about it for a month before it happened. They were like, oh, there's going to be a polar vortex, and then it happened. And like the whole (laughs) city was shut down. I spent five winters or six winters in Chicago. So I have experience of that wind chill. It's pretty crazy. Did you grow up there? No, I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. Oh, okay. And yeah. Chicago, for what drew you there? You Originally, no, no, no. It's kind of funny. Originally, because my informed consent clinic was here. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, now I'm just kind of like, I mean, I don't hate it, but I don't love it. And it just kind of has like this weird association with it of like, I came here for transition um, and hmm. now that's not relevant to my life anymore. So I definitely don't want to stay here forever, but it is what it is. And I don't hate it. So probably will be leaving when I get an opportunity, but. Mm-hmm. There's life there though. I mean, culture wise. Definitely. But it's very, at least from my perspective, a lot of the cultural aspects are very kind of like taken over by intersectional Hmm. lefty like all the art scene is like everyone uses neo pronouns um it's i don't know i just feel like everywhere i go it's like Hmm. in my face super in my face so it's it's kind of hard to interact with the culture here just because of my background and like i don't know it's not that i choose my friends based on their politics but i feel like the odd one out definitely hmm Neo-pronouns meaning with the X's and the Z's and the Y's? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Lots, lots and lots of that. How do, you, how do people uh, practically memorize everybody else's uh, unique pronoun signifiers? Well, 
technically you're supposed to go home and practice. So like if someone says they use a <laughs> if someone says they use a pronoun that you're unfamiliar with, um, you're supposed to ask them, how do I use those pronouns? And they're supposed to say, I use Zer. So like uh, Z went to the store to get Zer chicken stock for Zer recipe. And you're mm-hmm. supposed to go home, you're supposed to practice that so you don't mess up the next time you see them. Who polices everybody else's uh, pronouns? Is there is there a lot of time spent on like, oh, no, they're a Z now, or they're a Yaya, you know? Or they're, you're just supposed to whistle. <laughs> um, I don't know if there's a lot of time spent per se, but it's just kind of okay. policed by the culture. Like, it's just kind of... Hmm part of the culture now for example i was waiting i was in a coffee shop i was waiting for my coffee and they had like some local chicago magazine and it wasn't like a social justice or artsy magazine it was just like a normal chicago magazine and like i I felt like every other page i turned to was something to do with intersectional like race or gender theory yeah it's very prominent so are are you in college right now are you you're you're between uh, degrees, I guess. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out. it out. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you kind of grew up with this stuff on the forefront of, I guess, you know, the avant-garde of this kind of culture. And I think we, we spoke about your interaction with the, the trans culture. Um, and I guess this stuff is folded into that. Um, and was it always there? Was it the cool hip thing that you're kind of tired of? Or did it just all of a sudden arise around you after the fact? Well, it's a little bit weird. So when I lived in Ohio, um, the only place I really interacted with this stuff was online. Like my school was, it wasn't super conservative, my district, um, but it also wasn't super liberal. I feel like it was kind of a healthy mix of the two. Like I feel like just the way my school district was run was not, on the extreme in either way. And I appreciated that. Um, but definitely a lot of the intersectional theory type stuff was online. And then when I got to Chicago, that was the first time I ever had it so in my face. And I remember Mm -hmm. realizing that when I came for informed consent and I just thought to myself like, wow, I have to move here. It's so amazing. Everyone's so accepting. Everyone's so woke. Oh my God, I have to move here. And then I did, and then I detransitioned. <laughs> hmm. Do you think that uh, being immersed in that culture kind of uh, sped up or accelerated your uh, your change of uh, of thought, and then also the detransition too? I think it sped it up a little bit. Maybe not sped it up, but I distinctly remember like wanting to be friends with all these people and wanting to talk like politics with them because I like doing that, and just it all felt really fake. Like it all felt like you Mm. have to follow the script. You can't really have a discussion about what gender is and, and like kind of the stuff I wanted to talk about. Um, it was very much like you just had to follow your script. And if you didn't agree with, it, it was very like lined out how you were supposed to think. And I remember feeling really like repressed by that. So I kind of, I stopped seeking out those friends and I started isolating more. And then I kind of, I turned my back on the trans community before I ended up actually detransitioning for myself. So I kind of just like isolated myself and I didn't make any attempts to go to like queer groups or queer events or anything like that. I stopped seeking that out. And I think a lot of it, 
a lot of like my eventual decision to detransition was realizing like this group of people, this ideology was not everything I thought it was going to be. It wasn't like the friendly accepting bubble that I thought it was. And when I actually interacted with these people on a daily basis, like I had coworkers who were non-binary and blah, blah, blah. Um, and like, despite the fact that we shared this trans identity, I didn't feel like I could actually be friends with them because just something was super fake. And I think that was my first way of seeing through all of it. Did you see the fakeness in yourself or, or a distaste towards the fakeness more? Um, a distaste towards the fakeness. I don't think I really considered myself as part of the fakes. I kind of considered myself as like a real trans person who isn't like those people. And eventually I stopped believing that way, but um, at least before I detransitioned, I was just kind of like, oh, I wish I could change the trans community to make them less like that. Did you have any success or you just kind of walked away? <laughs> I, I just like walked away and stopped communicating with them at all. So it's been a year, almost a year since I had you on and, um, and almost a year since you and the other girls of the Peak Resilience uh, Project came out, I guess. This is like another coming out that you guys came out. So how has your, your view on uh, different trans people uh, changed or have you had different interactions with a, a wider variety of people who are in the trans category or identify as trans? I definitely have. I've gone through a couple of phases so far in kind of the way I think about this stuff since detransitioning. Um, at first, I was definitely um, more against trans people in transition than I am now. Kind of just like all people who transition are completely delusional. There's absolutely nothing except patriarchy that would ever make you feel that way at all. And yeah. the only way to deal with it is to reject patriarchy and to be a gender nonconforming man or woman. Um, and I kind of slowly stopped vibing <laughs> with like the patriarchy talk and I kind of like stepped <laughs> back and I noticed I was getting sucked into another ideological world. And eventually, um, one person who has been really influential is Mars of the Transbra podcast. He reached out to me um, because I tweeted Calvin Guerra. Calvin Guerra called me a turf. I responded to Calvin Guerra being like, I'm not a turf. Here are my views. Um, you can call me a turf if you want. You're just not going to be correct. And Mars saw that and was like, hey, why don't you come on the podcast? And Ever since that first podcast I did, I've been kind of talking to more trans people who are not really towing the line of that ideology. And I can't say I understand why transition has worked for them when it didn't for me. Um, but I mm -hmm. definitely do, I guess, respect individual trans people more, even though I don't understand their decisions or their feelings. I have reached the point where I can kind of see them as individuals and just be like, okay, maybe I think what you're doing is not the healthiest thing. Maybe I don't agree with it, but I can still have a conversation with you and not bring up the fact that you're trans every time and try to convert mm -hmm. you away, which mm -hmm. is kind of the place that I was in before that. Mm -hmm. not like every trans person needs to be converted to detransitioning. It seems like you have a, 
you're you're kind of growing out of an evangelical kind of uh, mindset, and by which I mean you have a, a idea of how the world works, and you, it's kind of your job to convince other people of that. And it seems like what you described, and please correct me, I don't mean this as a judgment, but in in the you went from a trans ideology to kind of a gender critical ideology, and then you're moving out of that. Or do you, do you find that kind of behavior following you of of uh, kind of facing outward and and working through your uh, your worldview by interacting or convincing or arguing it with other people? I have definitely functioned that way for a long time, ever since before I even found trans stuff online. I went to a Catholic school. I was super super religious. Um, mm-hmm. I remember like constantly giving my little brother a hard time because he wouldn't pray at night, and so I've kind of functioned in this evangelical way for a pretty long time for a majority of my life. And now I'm kind of trying to focus on myself and kind of like cleaning up my own room before I try to fix the world because I don't have all the answers. And like just trying to remember that no matter how much I feel something is right, no matter how much I have rationalized something to be 100% correct, it never is. And there's always those exceptions and there's always ways in which I don't have a certain perspective or a certain um, piece of information. So I am trying to consciously keep a distance and not project my worldview onto others. Mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts about why you're like that? And I'm speaking about you, but I think that your personal anecdotal experience would resonate with others. Like what was the use or the coping mechanism of you know, projecting your worldview on other people, you think? I think it's just when you feel like you don't have any control over your situation, as I very much did throughout my childhood and my adolescence, um, it becomes very tempting to try to control everyone else and to control the world around you because you don't have a way of regulating your emotions and your insecurities on the inside. So you kind of have to like control the outside world. And that does also include political and philosophical opinions because especially as someone like me, who I am really passionate about ideas and the world and stuff, if I feel insecure inside myself, Hmm. I also feel very insecure about the outside world. There's all this terrible stuff going on. And I have previously felt that if I could just fix the outside world and stop all of this awful stuff from going on, then I wouldn't feel so insecure on the inside. Mm -hmm. And that performing that or going through this development that you've gone through um, with the internet right there so that it's just sucking up every opinion that you throw into it. Um, And then it reflects it back on you, I guess, or or it even uh, captures it for all of eternity. I don't know if um, you've had, you know, stuff in your past come back at you, but Mm. what is it like? Does it feel like you don't have any privacy? Because you've gone from a Tumblr kind of lifestyle. Now you're you're in peak resilience. You're on Twitter. Um, do, Do you feel like you have a private life or there's, do, do you yearn for, uh, some some part of you or part of your life that that is shelter that doesn't get exposed there is definitely a lot of my life that i don't put on twitter um not really on purpose just because i don't feel the need um like sometimes i'll see people 
being like, happy new years. Here's a picture of my dinner and all of my family sitting together and blah, blah, blah. And I've never felt the need to do that. If I'm okay. with some of my friends, I don't feel the need to post about that online unless like someone makes a funny joke. And I think people on Twitter would appreciate it. I'll tweet the joke out of context, but I won't like, I don't know. I don't feel the need to put my daily activities onto Twitter. As for my thoughts about life and like kind of like my musings, I definitely kind of vomit those into Twitter every single day all the time. Um, mm -hmm. But in terms of my daily activities, I do think I do a good job of keeping that private. So I, the, my broader question was that, did you have to develop a sense of privacy? And was that something lacking in your life? Or did you kind of have a, a line that you were you had drawn? I don't think I did it intentionally. I just think I'm in a place now in life where I don't feel like I need to include the Twitter people in everything that I'm doing. Because I think unlike when I was on Tumblr, I recognized that this is real life and mm. that's Twitter. Um, whereas maybe before I thought real life and the internet were kind of the same thing and they intermingled, but I have a better separation of that now. So I, I just don't feel the compulsion to put everything online. Speaking of real life, have you, have you guys done, uh, you, you folks, your peak resilience stuff, have you guys done uh, real life events? Have you traveled a bit? Have you met people mm -hmm. in person? Oh my God, yeah. Um, that's kind of a lot of what we've been doing. We've been slacking a little bit on the online content because we've been doing a lot of stuff in real life. Um, about a year ago, we had the Gender Hurts panel in New York City. That was great. We got to meet a lot of great people. Um, some other detransitioners, not a lot. A lot of moms. Um, mm -hmm. we, also, we recently were in D.C. in October. <clears throat> that was great. It was about five days. We talked to a lot of people in government. We talked to a lot of people in some major health-oriented organizations here in the States, and that was pretty successful. Um, unfortunately, I can't give a lot of information on that just okay. because a lot That's of those people... Stuff. No, a lot of the people that we did talk to, they expressed concern that if okay. we were to say online that we talked to them and they agreed with us, that they would get a lot of flack for it. Oh, interesting. So what, yeah. what do you think is the state then, or what did you learn about the state of policy with regards to transition and detransition on a, you know, on a national level? Were you able to glean kind of insights into where things are at? Oh, yeah. Um, so in terms of politicians, they, the meetings we had with politicians were the most um, disappointing because they just kind of... It felt like they didn't really care. They just were listening to us because they had to. Um, but in the end, they weren't going to change their position. They weren't really going to take detransitioners into account because, I mean, we have the election coming up and they really need to have their whole partisan thing on fleek. So that was pretty upsetting. Um, but as for health organizations, I got the distinct vibe um, and even was told explicitly that this is happening, that a lot of the old timers in these organizations are completely at the mercy of ideologues who have infiltrated. So we spoke to one individual from a pretty prominent uh, healthcare organization who is a prominent member of this organization. He has a lot of influence in this organization, or so we thought. He has the title that would have a lot of influence, but he is like completely at the mercy of this committee 
and the committee is a relatively new thing and the committee has all these mm. ideologues on it and they're the ones who write the guidelines they're the ones who um you know decide what information to put on the website and this individual felt like he was too maybe old and out of touch with like the current climate that is going on to efficiently put the brakes on this and it kind of got out of control and now he doesn't have his hands on the reins of this organization or this sector of the organization anymore and that was particularly scary to me that these ideologues can just come in um and just push these people out who previously had a lot of influence over these organizations and just completely take over mm -hmm. he completely agreed with us he had read up on a lot of the trans healthcare ethical and medical issues. He was very well versed on it. He was really grateful that we came and talked to him. He offered a lot of advice and a lot of ways to help, but within his organization, there wasn't a lot he could do. Hmm. Have you, I just recently interviewed uh, GNC Centric or Ben up in Canada and she was speaking kind of uh, off camera. She was speaking about a person that she kn knows who was trans and then is detransitioned and the entire medical establishment has no idea how to help this person because everything's geared in one direction. I called it like the Sarlacc pit of gender therapy or it's, it's all, mm -hmm. it's all shoots and no ladders. There's no way out. Has that been your personal experience? And have you received, uh, you know, input from other people in your uh, situation that that's replicated in the United States? I, I haven't had a whole lot of experience with this just because I didn't really seek out a whole lot of healthcare after I okay. detransitioned. Um, but of the healthcare that I did seek out, I went back to one of the informed consent clinics that I transitioned under because I wanted some blood tests done because I was feeling just really weird and I wanted to make sure that my hormones were okay. Um, I went in there and I said, I detransitioned, I'm off testosterone, I just want to make sure that my blood tests are going to be okay. And then they were just kind of like, oh, okay, so you're not going to go back on testosterone? And I was like, no, I'm not. And the nurse was just like, oh, okay. Um, yeah, okay, 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 let's, uh, let's do this blood test. Yeah. And I was just like, alrighty. And then I went to a primary care physician a little bit after, because someone told me I probably should. And I told her a little bit, she was like an older woman, I told her a little bit of what was going on. And I felt like it completely went over her head. And she didn't understand the whole thing about I took testosterone to try to be a man. She was all like, but you don't look like a man. And I said, Yeah, I know. So it's kind of in between, there's like the ideological clinicians who don't want to admit that detransition happens. And I think they kind of like sweep it under the rug, both in their own minds and in their practice. Um, and then there's the people who just like have no idea what's going on, or they're kind of threatened by it. They don't know what to do. So they'll either just like the one lady I saw, she just kind of was really confused. Um, but I've heard from other people that they'll just get referred back to a gender clinic. Okay. Yeah. Do you, you, can you remind me how long you were on testosterone? 17 months. 17 months. So about a year and a half almost. So, um, I guess depending on how deep one goes, that'll, that'll translate to how much care they need afterwards. Did yeah. you, 
seek out psychological or mental assistance in that? Or were you kind of just on your own your whole time, the whole time? I did seek out psychological assistance. Um, so while I was detransitioning, I was seeing this one therapist who I was also seeing while I was transitioning. She worked at a like LGBT resource center here in Chicago. Um, and she was not very like supportive of me detransitioning. She didn't outwardly say, don't do it. But she was like, oh, we need to explore this. Um, this is very sudden. You, you've always had such strong dysphoria. We've talked about this dysphoria a lot. We need to explore whether or not this is something your parents pressured you into. Is this internalized transphobia? Um, hmm. So that kind of... So it is a one-way... From her, it was yeah. like kind of a, there's no way out. Like, why would you ever go out? Exactly. She was very alarmed by the fact that I was thinking about detransitioning. And soon after that, I just stopped seeing her because I didn't want to go into therapy and have her t- like tell me that what I was feeling was not correct. Because like what therapist does that? Um, and since then, I've sought out a lot of psychological care and <sighs> individual therapists I've had have been sympathetic, but not really understanding of the fact that the desire to transition and gender dysphoria can come out of body image issues and trauma in a similar way to something like an eating disorder can. They don't really understand that. They think it's like, oh, I'm just like the one person who got cut off in it. No one else, like that wouldn't happen to anyone else. Everyone else is really trans. I'm just a special case. So they're kind mm-hmm. of sympathetic, but they don't really get it. Mm-hmm. In your uh, adventures in uh, politics then with the Peak Resilience Project, have you guys networked with other uh, therapists who are more in the know or have you uh, seen the beginning of a development of this kind of understanding of what detransition is or like the likelihood and the process of helping somebody that's going through that? Yeah, I've spoken to a couple. I spoke to one of the... um, clinicians, a psychologist who resigned from the Tavistock Clinic. I've spoken to her. Um, and I that's know in the she, UK, right? Yeah, that's in the UK. Um, and then Lisa Marciano and Sasha Ayad are both trying to kind of network um, different uh, mental health care providers that are woke about this. But I haven't personally tried to network anyone. Have you done any writing about this, essays or, uh, I mean, I guess uh, video logs about the your transition with regards to your relationship to what you described as gender dysphoria or called gender dysphoria? A little bit. I've written basically saying like, I believe in ROGD. I think it's a thing that happens. I wrote a piece on Lily Maynard's blog about this. um, And that was probably the first thing I ever wrote. And I also am working on the little series about Tumblr. I've gotten a little bit sidetracked from that, just dealing with personal issues, but I am working on it. That's the one on fourth wave now. Yeah. I really yeah. enjoyed the first the first one. The first, the first one, one, couple. couple. Thank you. There's the second one's out and I'm working on the third one, but the third one is kind of like a mammoth. I'm trying to explain trans culture on Tumblr and it is like layers and layers and layers and layers of crazy. And it's really hard to explain it, especially as an outsider now. Um but yeah, I, I've done a little bit of writing on it, but not too much, especially on like the kind of therapy I've received. But I would like to. When I get a little bit out of therapy, um, I think I will look back on it and write on my experience because it's definitely been weird in regards to gender. Has it has it changed uh, over the last year, like uh, your relationship to dysphoria? 
or is it um, turned into something else? Is it still persistent? I do have dysphoria occasionally. It's not an everyday thing, but yeah, I definitely still experience it here or there. It was really weird. Um, so when I first went into treatment for my eating disorder about two months ago, um, the first like two weeks of that, when I had stopped all of my behaviors, just like cold turkey, for some reason, my gender dysphoria came like roaring back. And I could mm. like, I was just standing in front of the mirror, like thinking like, what is this? Who am I? Like, why don't I, why do I have this body? What the hell is going on? I felt like I was going insane. But I think it has something to do with just like that coping mechanism and like wanting to control my body and, and have it be something different than what it is. So I have it still, but one, it's few and far in between, few and far in between. And two, I'm more mindful of it. I'm less like in, I'm less controlled by it. So like when it comes up, I'm just like, whoa, that's a feeling instead of it coming up and me immediately being like, I need testosterone now. I need surgery now. Hmm. How, how do you, um, what are some of the methods that you use to kind of walk through that when it comes over you? or even any extreme emotion, but that one in particular. Just trying to notice it and kind of try to see what my thought pattern was that ended up in like gender dysphoria. Um, just really being mindful and not taking it as a fact that like I wasn't supposed to be female, I was supposed to be male, I should have these body parts, I shouldn't have these body parts, to not take that as a fact. Hmm. And it kind of, it eventually dissipates then. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot less scary when you don't take it seriously. Do you see any use in uh, like a community uh, talking about this? Uh, one interesting thing about like a community that I've been noticing with regards just in the context of LGBT is that if you have a bunch of people concentrating on an issue, it kind of makes that issue bigger. It doesn't always help to have everybody have a support group that everybody's dealing with the same issue. But have you um, seen the usefulness of having a community around you speaking about this issue? And what are the, some of the ways to keep that healthy and, and, and beneficial rather than like that, that pit thing that Tumblr can turn into. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think it is really helpful for detransitioners to kind of get together and discuss these things and share their stories, mostly because there is this narrative that detransition never happens. These thoughts are not things that happen. Doubt does not happen. So you feel really alone when you start having those thoughts and you're thinking like, what is wrong with me? Why isn't this working for me? Why, why am I not having the right experiences? What have I done wrong? What's wrong with me? And then to have other people say that they've also had that experience kind of lets you know that you're not crazy and there's nothing wrong with you because transition didn't work out, that it's actually kind of a big, um, and that it's kind of like an issue with the medical establishment, an issue with the ideology, as opposed to something's wrong with you. So I think that aspect is helpful. Um, but I also think, and I'm guilty of this, that there's kind of like a detrans ideology type of thing starting to kind of come up where hmm. people have their own, their new views on gender and transition, and they kind of, again, like evangelize about it when you really haven't had that long of a time to process what you just went through and process your own gender dysphoria. And I think it 
Like when you have strong feelings about something like this, and especially when you feel like you were betrayed by the trans community and the medical establishment, it's really easy to say like, this is what I think now and this is the truth. Before I was deluded, but now I know the truth. It's really easy mm -hmm. to do that, but I think we need to not do that. And I think we need to mm -hmm. all take a step back and try to like look at what this is before making proclamations about it. And I think that's kind of the danger that the D-trans community is running into, but I don't think it's too, too serious yet. Um, it's not like it's, like, it's not like the entire D-trans community is like this, but I can tell that there are some people, me included in the past, who have been like that, and I think that is probably the biggest danger to it, because it prevents us from really knowing the truth and really um, discovering what is behind all these things. If we already know that people transition because of patriarchy, how are we going to be open to other reasons why people might be transitioning and help those people? I think that's it's, there's for a certain certain person. I'm I'm not saying entirely, and I want to divorce this from sexuality or any identity. But certain forms of the LGBT community, as a community, and this is replicated in any community that has a certain belief system where the members are formed and speaking around kind of the same topic, there's an orthodoxy. Wherever there's an orthodoxy, um, that orthodoxy attracts vulnerable people, people who need armor, people who need scaffolding, people who need order in their life. Yeah. And they, they glom onto that. So when they leave that, they might be twice as vulnerable when they yeah. go out there. And radicalism is a way of projecting vulnerability onto the world. It's a way of, of acting big and loud as if you know things because you don't. And, and to be mindful of that vulnerability, it's, it's very difficult. So, so there will be, I think there will be residual orthodoxies in a D-trans kind of, any, any, any kind of D, uh, what's it called when you, when you get on deprogramming uh, mm -hmm. place. There, there will be people who need uh, who need to be weaned off of that radicalism, weaned off of that fundamentalism, weaned off of that evangelicalism and kind of get towards that really vulnerable space where they can build themselves up properly yep. from, from the ground floor up. Yeah. Agreed. So just being mindful of that um, might be useful or helpful. Mm-hmm. I I reached out to you for this talk one because I I really enjoyed our, our interview and I, I wanted to get you back on but you were you were kind of you were talking on Twitter about the gender critical thing and and I liked that you're somebody who pits you want to be in between things you you want to you're like okay well I don't agree with this group I don't agree with that group and it that stance um, it shows the uh, you know a willingness to be free, be independent, and also kind of be vulnerable too to get crap from all these different sides. Um, mm -hmm. What do you think is your motivation for for standing apart from these different um, what you perceive as group thinking or, or orthodoxies? Um, part of it is just never wanting to be like that again because I was super, super, super into trans ideology. And when I detransitioned and I immediately got so much love from rad femmes, I, it was really, really intoxicating to me because like you said, I was double, I was twice as vulnerable. So to have this new community like embrace me with loving arms as long as I interpreted my experience the correct way, um, that was really intoxicating. And when I realized that that, that that is what was happening, it really freaked me out. And I was mm. like, oh my God, I have to make 
such an active attempt to not do that. I have to really consider everything I think from now on because it's so easy to fall into that. I think that is definitely part of it. And then the other thing is just I'm really passionate about solving this issue and I'm passionate about other girls like me who have mental health issues and abuse histories from getting sucked into this trans pipeline and I don't think that coming up with another ideology that explains everything is going to accurately account for the diversity of people that are getting caught up in this and the unique experiences that result in body hatred and gender dysphoria. And I think that it's going to be doing a lot of people a disservice and the entire movement a disservice to close ourselves off from additional perspectives and additional information. So it's really like my passion for solving this issue that I don't want to be radical against this issue that I want to be balanced and I want to be open to information. When you moved away from the gender critical community, maybe, or just the mindset, um, did you, did you notice your behavior had changed? Um, did you have to lose a bunch of friends? Did you end up having to give up everything? Were, were there different tactics that you used or was the community, the GC community more open to, uh, being flexible with, with, uh, you were, were they as, uh, kind of policing their community based on belief or was it less so? At first it felt like less so because all I had known for the last five years was trans ideology. So to have any community that was open to criticizing that, that felt like freedom. But the more involved I got, the more I noticed that if you like, I don't know, I would just be on YouTube and I would find a video of, I don't know, somebody talking about some issue. And I'd be like, wow, that's a really good point. And then I would go post about it on Twitter and a bunch of rad fans would come up and be like, no, that's not right. That's not true. That's not right. That's not true. And I kind of just noticed like, wow, it's the same thing. Hmm. So even though at the beginning it felt like freedom, once I kind of was not fresh out of trans ideology, I recognize that it has a lot of the same behaviors. They might not be as powerful financially um, or politically as the trans community, but it's not like you can disagree with them. Do you feel homeless or do you feel like that there is somewhere for you to be some, some group or coalition or, or even a religion or a philosophy, even stoicism? Is there, do you feel that there's something out there for you or do you feel like that you're a part of something that you can call your home as a worldview or that you can share with other people? right now there really isn't i definitely feel kind of like caught in between on everything like every issue that i'm interested in i'm very in between um and maybe in the future there will be something that appeals to me like that where i can kind of identify myself as part of that group um but i honestly don't know if i really want there to be um i don't know if i am part of a group like that in the future it needs to be a group that is open to disagreement um, because I really don't want to just follow something blindly ever again because that really got me into trouble. Hmm. Do, you, um, do you think you'll go back to college at some point? I think about it, um, but I guess I'm hesitant, one, because it's so expensive um, I just don't think that the education that you get is worth forty to sixty thousand um, dollars. 
Um, I was talking about this to a friend earlier. I said, like, if I'm going to be paying $60,000, I better be going to Hogwarts, not just like some silly school that's going to teach me about critical race theory. Um, so as for right now, I'm just trying to increase my knowledge base by just reading on my own. And maybe in the future, when I kind of know what my career path is going to be, I might consider going back to school. But I definitely don't have the same perspective on college that I used to. They're like, you go to college and you get educated, then you get a job. Kind of how I used to see it. But now it's just like, it's really flawed. And it's not worth it. If it ever becomes a lot cheaper and a lot higher standards, maybe I'll consider it. But for right now, I'm not really interested. What is your topic that you're uh, investigating right now, other than the trans stuff? Or, I mean, even, like, are you looking into psychology or something that's related to that, going forward through that? Yeah, I really like psychology. Um, that's kind of history and psychology are kind of my favorite topics. Right now I'm reading the book The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. Um, it's a really awesome book. I feel like everyone needs to read it, but it's about trauma, different traumatic events, or even just like adverse events um, can affect you in ways that are physical as well as psychological and how like those physical effects can keep you trapped in like these negative psychological patterns because you're not addressing the physical parts. And he goes through a lot of science and a lot of information and 30 years of his own research. And it's just been like, pretty revolutionary in the way that I look at my own mental health. Um, but I think it's like, it's pretty crucial because I think a majority of the population has at least had some kind of adverse childhood experience or relational issues in the family. And I think if we could be more compassionate with that and more understanding of how that functions neurologically, psychologically, physiologically, we would be more able to solve a lot of problems because we would be kind of understanding why some people act the way they do. Mm -hmm. The mechanisms behind behavior. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anything else? Um, I am very interested in kind of how critical theory came about. Um, it's very overwhelming, and I feel like it's hard to know what is true and what is not, because a lot of it is just people's own perspectives on how it came about. But I am really interested in it. I'm looking forward to... James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose's, I hope I'm pronouncing her name right, um, book that's coming out, Cynical Theories, I think it's called. Really looking forward to that. Um, so yeah, I that's like, pretty soon. A couple months, yeah, maybe. Yeah, I'm pretty excited for that. And I, I like history. I'm reading or listening to a book on um, the Dark Ages. It's called A World Lit by Fire. It's really good. Um, Sounds romantic. Yeah. Yeah, right? It's it's great. I'm only in the beginning, and they're talking about uh, the fall of the Roman Empire. And it's really interesting, like, comparing the fall of the Roman Empire to kind of, like, where Western society is right now. Because it's, like, all the bureaucracy, like, the hyper, like, tribalism that was going on. Just kind of higher-ups and people in power brushing stuff under the rug. Everyone gets lazy. Everyone gets so focused on winning whatever they're winning or losing at. It's really interesting. Hmm. Hmm. What's next for the desisted cis sisters of the Peak Resilience Project? I am starting my own interview series for PRP. I'm really excited. Um, I'm going to have Laura on 
Um, I'll give you her Twitter um, username, so you can maybe put that in the, the description. But she's really great. She detransitioned like 10 years ago. Um, so she was oh. kind of, She'll be on my show in a couple of weeks, yeah. Really? She's in, yeah. Uh, she's in Eastern Europe. Yeah, she is. Um, I thought her story was really captivating and just like pretty incredible that she survived what she did without the community support that we are building right now. So I think she has a lot to say for us younger people who are going through that. Um, so I'm really excited for that. And uh, we are researching a little bit about the links between PCOS and gender dysphoria because Price, um, the newest member of our squad, has PCOS. And it What's just that? kind of like the, uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome. It can cause increased levels of testosterone in females. And she, um, Price, was describing how this affected the way she looked, which affected the way she kind of like stood out amongst other girls and made her feel like she wasn't one of them and like she was meant to be a guy because she had higher levels of testosterone and looked different. Um, and I think there is some research linking trans men to PCOS and gender dysphoria in females to this disorder. So we're kind of looking into that and we're probably going to be making a video about that soon, but we're kind of like in the research stages of that. Oh, cool. Excellent. Was your, if you don't mind me asking, was your, do you think of your gender dysphoria or your body dysmorphia as socially uh, constructed or put upon you by, by society, magazines, et cetera, media? Um, or is it like internal? Do you, do you see it as more of a internal thing that came from inside of you? Neither. I think both are due to a lot of issues that were going on in my family. Okay. So it's in a complex interplay of those things. Yeah. Like in short, like very short, my mom is super obsessed with weight and beauty and image. Um, and she just kind of like very forcefully instilled in me that my body was wrong. I need to fix it, change it. And, you know, like trans just seemed like a good explanation. Like gender dysphoria seemed like a good explanation for why I didn't like certain body parts. So it's kind of like neither. Do you, do you think that, um, in your speaking with other people that gender dysphoria is too complex to have a cultural, uh, origin or a psychological origin? It's always going to be a mixture of the two. Do you think, do you think that society media in general, uh, pushes too much pressure on women to act and look a certain way and, and that ends, uh, that leads them to acting upon themselves, um, with, I guess, just the trans stuff or any other, um body modification I think there's going to be social aspects to most people's gender dysphoria especially in the case of gay and gay men and lesbian women who develop gender dysphoria just from the accounts that I've heard they are pretty clear and concise in their experiences growing up as gay or lesbian, being bullied for it, wishing that they could be the opposite sex so that they could have the relationships they want and look the way they want without this persecution, which is very real. Um, but I think that there is also a subset of people who are more like me, where it's more psychological. 
And I do think part of it was social. Like I never fit in with other girls. Uh, there was always something weird about me. I don't know if that's just because of how I am or if it was because I was a troubled kid growing up, but there's always been something different. I'm not sure how much of that is social or how much of that is internal, but I do think that it's a mixture of both for most people. I don't think anyone is either purely social or purely internal. Mm-hmm. Do you still feel weird? Like you, st- oh, you yeah. stick out? Oh, How do yeah. you feel about that? Um, I'm trying to appreciate it. I'm trying to like appreciate my differences, but I've spent a long, a lot, to, a lot of time in my life hating myself for those differences. So it's hard to get over that. Um, but I'm trying to. Hmm. Self care. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, do you have any questions for me, Helena? Um. <laughs> <laughs> how, to, how the hell do you make the screen split? <laughs> oh, yeah. We needed to talk about uh, your, uh, your, your podcast stuff. Um, yeah. Did you still need tech uh, advice on that? Or did you figure, figure it all out? I haven't really looked into it since I read your message. Okay. I read your message and I was like, uh, cause you said that it, I'm going to have to like work with the program. And I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> so I just like kind of stopped looking at it, but I told myself tonight that I would look into the software that you sent me, um, and try to okay. figure it out. And if not, I will probably ask you more questions. Okay. All right. Well, let's wrap it up then. Uh, could cool. you say goodbye to the listener? Bye listeners. Okay, that's cool. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to stop the recording now.